Well, I invite you to open your Bibles with me this morning to the book of Jeremiah. As you turn to Jeremiah, a quick word in answer to a question that you might be wanting to ask me. Am I trying to grow a beard? Okay. All right. I've been asked that many times today, so just to set your heart at ease. It does appear that way. Okay. It was New Year's recently, and we do often make resolutions at that time. And this was definitely my wife's New Year's resolution <laughs> that I tried to grow up here. Okay. So, so that is out in the open. You can not think about that anymore. All right. Now, as we go to Jeremiah today, it's been about a month since we were last in this book together. So today, I want to begin with a little bit of review for all of us. If if you've just started attending recently, or maybe this is even your first time, I hope this will help you as well. So a few things. Okay, Jeremiah is the longest book in the Bible. By words, longest book in the Bible. 52 chapters, long chapters. Uh, not only is it long, it is a hard book to understand, one of the hardest to understand for sure. Now, why is that? Why do we have such a hard time understanding books like Jeremiah or other big prophetic books like Isaiah or Ezekiel. There are a lot of reasons for this, but one big reason is it can be hard to keep some basic things in your mind as you read through the book. <clears throat> for example, it can be hard in the prophets to remember when this specific prophet was living and where this prophet was serving and what was going on around the prophet in his, in his lifetime. In some of our early sermons in this series, we spend a lot of time on those things, so I'm not going to talk about it much, but just a couple things to remember. At first, by the time Jeremiah was alive, Israel, as in the ten northern tribes, was long gone. They had been taken captive like maybe 80 years before Jeremiah's lifetime. It's, when he's living, it's like the late 600s BC. So that means that Jeremiah served in the south, which was known as Judah. And what you always need to remember about Judah are these things. Judah is where Jerusalem, the capital city, is. We have a couple people from our church, two members from our church, in Jerusalem right now. I just got a text message with a bunch of pictures, I think, from them in Jerusalem today. Judah is the region where Jerusalem, the capital city, was. So that means Judah is where the temple was. And that also means that Judah is where the sons of David sat on the throne. Okay, So that is where and when Jeremiah lived. But what was going on around him when he lived? He served, and we read chapter 1 today. If you look at the first verses of Jeremiah, it tells you all these different kings he served under. He, he served during the reign of five different kings, five different sons of David. The first one was really good, Josiah, and the last four were total duds. That's what I've been saying to summarize those last four. He served, like Moses, for about 40 years as a prophet, and he served during the transition time for Judah. Judah, at the beginning of Jeremiah's life, had their own land and had their own king sitting on the throne. By the end of his life, they would be kicked out of the land and they would be serving under the king of Babylon, a foreign king. Okay, So he serves during that 
transition. All right, now, over the last few sermons in Jeremiah, this is going back like maybe six, eight weeks ago, we've been focusing on some of the biggest themes or messages that Jeremiah preaches throughout the book. Themes like judgment, talks about the king, talks about idolatry. Uh, Today, I want to do something a little different. Instead of focusing on one big message, I want to draw our attention instead to the life and deeds of Jeremiah, the prophet. Or to put it a different way, instead of focusing so much on the words of Jeremiah, like the things that he preached, I want to draw our attention today to the acts of Jeremiah, especially the symbolic things that he did during his life. If you've ever read the prophets, in the prophets, it's clear that the main thing the prophets did was preach. They delivered God's word to God's people. But in the case of a few of the prophets, they did more than preach. Sometimes God spoke through their lives to the people, not just through their words. Sometimes it would be something about their life in general that was unique, and it would communicate something to the people. But in many cases, God would actually tell the prophets to do something very specific that was very strange, like for a set amount of time. And then the prophet would often explain what the point of all that was to the people. Okay, perhaps you're familiar with this, perhaps you're not. Okay? But can you think of any of those symbolic acts if you've ever read anything in the prophets? Okay. Can you think of anyone who does strange things in the Old Testament as a prophet? I can think of, I can think of four prophets who wrote scripture who did strange things. Okay? Like God told to do strange things. That would be Isaiah... Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Hosea. Now, there may be more. Those are the four that come to my mind. Perhaps the most well-known symbolic act, and I think this will help you get the idea. Perhaps the most well-known symbolic act of any of them is what God called Hosea to do. If you know anything about the book of Hosea, you know this symbolic act. What did God tell Hosea to do? He told him to go and to marry an unfaithful woman, basically a prostitute, named Gomer, and to keep pursuing her at different points in the book. Hosea's relationship with Gomer would symbolize God's relationship with his unfaithful bride, Israel. Now, as far as the prophet who did strange stuff the most... Who would that be? Any guesses? I think it would have to be Ezekiel. Ezekiel. For example, Ezekiel, who's kind of a contemporary, a little bit younger than Jeremiah, but mostly contemporary, he he lays down for over a year. And he spends 390 days laying on his left side. And then he spends... 40 days lying down on his right side, tied up while he did it. He also does a bunch of other things. You can read about in Ezekiel chapter 4 and chapter 5, and and maybe other places. But in in these cases, the prophet would not just tell the people the word of the Lord. They would, in essence, 
embody the word of the Lord. They would like be the message to the people. And one of the things that I've learned through just listening to Jeremiah a lot is that there are several places throughout the book where he does this kind of stuff too. This isn't as much a part of his life as it is for Ezekiel. And I'm also, I'm not sure that any single story is like worth a whole sermon, you know, to like that we're going to focus the whole time on one of these. But I, I think it'd be very interesting, this is what I want to do today, to look at many of them together and to try to think like, how did God communicate through his life to the people? There are actually, I think, about seven symbolic acts that he does. We're just going to look at four of them today, and then maybe we'll pick up others at other times. Okay, so as we go through these four stories, we're not going to have time to read the whole story every time, but I'll point out where they are, and I'll tell, I'll tell enough of the story so you can understand it. Okay, so go first to Jeremiah chapter 13. Jeremiah chapter 13, and we're going to spend, we're going to actually read most of this uh, story. You'll see maybe a heading at the top. Those are really helpful. And mine says in my Bible, the ruined loincloth. Okay. Maybe you are familiar with this story. I wouldn't be surprised if you're not familiar <laughs> with a lot of these stories. Okay, so Jeremiah chapter 13, verse 1. Thus says the Lord to me, go and buy a linen loincloth and put it around your waist and do not dip it in water. So I bought a loincloth according to the word of the Lord and put it around my waist. All right, so that's pretty interesting, right? There is no explanation yet. Jeremiah is not told in advance why to do this. He's just told it is time for you to go and buy a linen loincloth. Now, linen was valuable. It was often connected to priests. I mean, the, but what exactly was going on here? Like, what was this? And even what it was this piece of clothing, a linen loincloth? Okay, some people think this is something like undergarments, underwear, something that you would put under all of your clothing, and that is certainly possible. I think that the ESV, by translating it loincloth, is kind of leaning that direction. But other people think this is something that would go Yes, around your waist, but it would be on the outside of all of your clothing. <clears throat> and that would be more reflected in a translation, a linen belt, which is what you might find like in the NIV. It really could be either way. I would lean toward the second idea that it was on the outside because I, simply because I think this was going to be visible to the people because God was going to speak through the symbol. Uh, in, in some way to the people. And so perhaps you could picture uh, something like this, maybe, a linen belt that he would wear tightly around his waist. Either way, Jeremiah is told to do this, so he does it. So now he's got a nice new linen thing around his waist, and he starts to wear it. Okay? But what is the point? I don't think he even knows yet what the point is. Verse 3, Jeremiah 13, 3. And the word of the Lord came to me a second time. Take the loincloth that you've bought, which is around your waist. Arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in a cleft of the rock. So I went and I hid it by the Euphrates as the Lord commanded. That is also fairly strange, right? And just a quick note, there is a debate there about the word Euphrates, okay? 
whether this is talking about the Euphrates River, which is like 700 miles away. Okay, that would be a long journey to go and hide this thing, or whether it is actually referring to a place called Pirath, which is why some translations say that, which is like a couple miles away. Either way, he has to take this journey a couple miles or several hundred miles, and he finds some rocks, and he buries this thing in the rocks, and he leaves, okay? Now, verse 6. And after many days, the Lord said to me, Arise, go to the Euphrates, or Pirath, and take from there the loincloth that I commanded you to hide there. So I went to the Euphrates, and I dug, and I took the loincloth from the place where I had hidden it, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled. It was good for nothing. Okay, that is not too surprising that that would happen. Okay, what is all of that about? Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to me, thus says the Lord, even so will I spoil the pride of Judah and the great pride of Jerusalem. This evil people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own hearts and go after other gods to serve them and worship them, will be like this loincloth, which is good for nothing. Verse 11, this is really the key. <clears throat> for as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man, so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me, declares the Lord, that they would be for me a people, a name, a praise, a glory, but they would not listen. That's the message that's communicated through the symbolic act. Okay, did you follow it? It's, it's very revealing about the kind of relationship God wants to have with his people. God made his people so that they would cling to him. And by the way, that's the same word that's used in Genesis 2 about how a man is supposed to leave his father and mother and cling to his wife. God made his people to cling to him. Like that linen belt or loincloth clung to Jeremiah. But the message is clear. Since the people refused to cling to him, they would become just like that ruined linen belt. Okay? That story is an example of what you see several times throughout the book. God will call Jeremiah not just to deliver his word to the people, but to act it out in some way for the people. Now, let's go to another story. Okay, the next one we'll look at is in Jeremiah chapter 19. Jeremiah chapter 19. Okay, if you look at the very first verse of Jeremiah 19, you'll be able to sense what this one's about. Thus says the Lord, go buy a potter's earthenware flask. Now, I, that did not mean much to me. That is a clay jar, okay? So perhaps you could picture something like this, right? God tells Jeremiah, it is time to go down to the local pottery shop and buy a clay jar, okay? And then, after he gets it, he is supposed to call all of these important people from the city 
together, and he's supposed to take them over to a very specific valley. And then, apparently, while he holds the jar, he's supposed to preach a message to them. And if you read the message, it is very, very rough. One of his roughest messages in the book. It's basically, you are all horrible people. <laughs> That's pretty much the gist of the message. And so then what he says is, because you're terrible people, God is going to turn this valley <clears throat> into the valley of slaughter. He's going to kill a whole bunch of the people. Okay, That's basically the message. But he's got this clay jar in his hand, apparently, throughout this message. And so then, as perhaps the climactic moment of the sermon, look at what Jeremiah is supposed to, supposed to do. Look at Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 10. I think this is the climax of the sermon. Jeremiah 19, verse 10. Then you shall break the flask, or the jar, in the sight of the men who go with you, and you will say to them, thus says the Lord, so will I break this people and this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. That would be a memorable sermon, right? Can you imagine me doing that on a Sunday, holding this thing the whole time, and then as the climactic moment, just throwing it on the ground, that God's going to do that to you? Now, this is the kind of stuff that people would put on social media you know, today. But this would be very memorable, right? That's the second story like this. Okay? Now for a third story. Go over to Jeremiah chapters 27 and 28. Jeremiah chapter 27. This story takes place many years later after the clay jar story. Because <clears throat> this one says it's at the beginning of the reign of the last king, Zedekiah. To see what God tells Jeremiah to do, Look at Jeremiah chapter 27, verse 2. 27, 2. Thus the Lord said to me, make yourself straps and yoke bars and put them on your neck. Okay? So can you imagine that? Jeremiah is supposed to make a wooden yoke with some leather straps, and he's supposed to wear it around town. Okay, so you imagine something like a, a wide piece of wood with straps coming down that he would wear on his shoulders. Okay, it would look maybe something like, like this. <clears throat> okay, and he's supposed to wear it around town as he preaches and does other things. Okay? Now, after he makes it, Jeremiah is supposed to call representatives from the nearby countries, and he's supposed to preach the same message to everybody while he wears the yoke. And what is the message that he is supposed to preach? If you read through the text, he basically preaches, if you, no matter what nation it was, if you will put on the yoke of Babylon, you'll be saved. Your land will not be destroyed. But if you refuse to put the yoke of Babylon on, God will destroy you. That's, that's basically the message, okay? And Jeremiah seems to do this yoke sermon many times. Like, this is not just a one-time thing. I don't know how long, but it seems like he does this for a long time. And in the next chapter, 
chapter 28, you realize this, this isn't over. He's still doing the yoke thing because of what happens in the next chapter. Chapter 28, we're introduced to another prophet named Hananiah. And not surprisingly, Hananiah did not like Jeremiah's message. In fact, he starts preaching too. This would have been very interesting to see this because I think you've got Jeremiah wearing the yoke, preaching, you need to submit to Babylon or you'll be destroyed. And Hananiah starts preaching seemingly in the same place. And what does he say? He says, I know what Jeremiah is telling you, but God told me he's going to break the yoke of Babylon within two years. We'll all be free. This leads to a showdown between Jeremiah and Hananiah. And it gets so heated that Hananiah actually seemingly, physically goes over and grabs the yoke off of Jeremiah's shoulders and breaks it in front of everybody. And Jeremiah does nothing. He just walks away. Later, God tells Jeremiah, get back there and you tell Hananiah something. <laughs> tell him, instead of a wooden yoke, I'm going to put an iron yoke on all of you. <laughs> and tell Hananiah, by the end of the year, he'll be dead. And then by the end of the chapter, he's dead. Okay? That is the third story like this. Now for the final story. Not so much a story of one specific time in Jeremiah's life. For the last one, I want to look at God's call on his whole life. There are going to be things about his entire life that are supposed to communicate God's message. And this, I think, is the hardest stuff God called Jeremiah to do. Jeremiah chapter 16. Jeremiah chapter 16. <clears throat> and look at verse 1. I don't know if you would know this about Jeremiah or not. <clears throat> Jeremiah is probably a young man when he's told this. Remember, he's called probably as a teenager. The word of the Lord came to me. This is chapter 16, verse 2 now. You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place. For thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place, concerning the mothers who bore them, the fathers who fathered them in this land, they will die of deadly diseases. They will not be lamented, nor will they be buried. They will be as dung on the surface of the ground. Okay, you follow that? <clears throat> Can you imagine being told that as a young man? You will never get married. You will never have sons or daughters. The question is, why? The answer is that God wants to communicate something, not just through Jeremiah's words, but through his life. And what does God want to communicate? This will say something about the future of those born in this land. The future is one of death and destruction. And so you will never get married and you will never have children. But that's not the only command. Look at verse 5. Verse 5, for thus says the Lord, do not enter the house of mourning or go to lament or grieve for them. For I have taken away my peace from this people, my steadfast love and mercy, declares the Lord. Now think about this. Jeremiah is going to see death all around him, kind of like Moses. 
He's going to see death all over for 40 years. He'll likely see many of his own family members die. And God says, don't mourn for any of them. Now, as you read the book, it's obvious that Jeremiah's heart does break for the people. He does often weep for them in the book. But he's told here he can never go to the house of mourning. And I think what that means is he's not allowed to join in with the community in mourning any of the lost people. And so imagine, imagine this, okay? He's invited to the funeral or the funeral meal of a friend. He must refuse every time. In fact, he's not even to show any sympathy to them. Before a guy who was already not liked. I mean, imagine what that would be like. And there's going to be death for decades. And he's never going to be allowed to go into the house of mourning and join with the community. Why? God wants to communicate something through his life to the people. I've taken away my peace and my mercy and my compassion. That's not all. Verse, verses 8 and 9. It says, you shall not go into the house of feasting either to sit with them and to eat and to drink. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will, silent, I will put silence in this place before your eyes and in your days, the voice of mirth, the voice of gladness. I will silence the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride. So when there happens to be times of feasting or rejoicing, Jeremiah, you can never go. If he's invited, for example, to a wedding feast, which would have been like the great, one of the greatest gatherings in a Jewish community, he has to decline every time. He cannot enter. Why? This is to communicate through his life to the people that God is going to silence all the joy in our land. Okay, what do you think about these things? I think that doing the strange sort of stuff, you know, like the linen belt thing, <clears throat> is like peculiar. Maybe people would laugh at him, you know, for doing that kind of things, those kind of things. But I think this sort of stuff is the hardest of all the things God calls him to do. He's told as a young man he would never marry, never have kids. He would never be able to join in with anybody else in the community in mourning or feasting. Well, I mean, think, think through what kind of life he was being called to live. And God wanted to speak not just through his words, but through his life, his messages. And it would be a hard life for Jeremiah. In these ways, Jeremiah would actually be God's message to the people. Okay, now those were the stories I wanted to work through. Now there's more than those in, in the book. And maybe we'll touch on some others at other times. But, but I, I wanted to get our minds back in the book, kind of see different parts of the book since we've been away for a while. But, but now I want to just help us process some of this, okay? So, so let's start with two observations. I think first, it's common for God to send a prophet not just to declare his word, but to demonstrate it or act it out in some way. God wants his people both to hear his word, but also to see it. 
in real life. He wanted to communicate his message both through the words and the deeds of Jeremiah. Second, I think if you, if you like, start thinking down that path, okay, because there's this really close connection between God's message and the actual life of the man, okay, what the people do to the man is like what they're doing to God and his message. Because the people, the, the prophet, like Jeremiah, is actually like God's representative. He, he is like embodying the message. And so as you read the book, what the people do to him, they are in essence doing to God and his message. And so then if we ask, well, how did the people treat Jeremiah? What did they do with this man? You probably already know the answer to this. You see it all over the book. But perhaps the most memorable text for me is in Jeremiah chapter 11. I think it summarizes what the people do to Jeremiah throughout his life, which is really what they're doing to God and his message. But Jeremiah chapter 11, we'll just look at one text on this. It's all over the book. Jeremiah chapter 11, this is the description of what the people from Jeremiah's own hometown did to him or wanted to do to him. Chapter 11, verse 18. <clears throat> the Lord made it known to me, and I knew you showed to me their deeds. <clears throat> I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not know it was against me that they devised their schemes, saying, let's destroy the tree with its fruit. Let's cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. That is a good summary of what they did to Jeremiah. Here's a man who came to his own people. He preached God's word among them for decades. He lived God's word out before them. And this is what they wanted to do with him. Let's cut that guy off from the land of the living so that no one ever remembers his name. And especially in his early life, Jeremiah didn't know this was going to happen. He says, I, I was like a gentle lamb being led to the slaughter. I didn't even know that it was against me that they were plotting all these things. And here's where I think we start to be able to make connections between Jeremiah's life and the life of Jesus. See, Jesus is also sent by God to deliver God's word to God's people. We see Jesus do that throughout his ministry in the Gospels. But Jesus, when you read the stories of him, he does more than preach God's word to God's people. Like Jeremiah, but in an even greater way, Jesus embodies God's word. In fact, if you ask John to describe Jesus at the beginning of the book, what does John say? He doesn't actually say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. That would be true enough to say that. What does he say? In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And then he'll say a little bit later, and the word became flesh 
and dwelt among us and we saw his glory. Jesus does not just preach God's word to God's people. He is the very word of God, the climactic revelation of God. So I think we see like shadows of that in the lives of the prophets, especially a guy like Jeremiah. But their stories are just preparing us for God's climactic revelation in Jesus. But I also want to think about what I just mentioned. Because of the close connection between God's message and the actual person of like the prophet, what the people do to the person is like what they're doing to God. Okay? We saw that with Jeremiah, but what if you think through the same thing with Jesus? What do the people do to Jesus? The very word of God in flesh. I think again of John's gospel. He came to his own. And what? And his own did not receive him. The ministry of Jeremiah prepares us for the ministry of Jesus. And the rejection of Jeremiah prepares us for the rejection of Jesus. Now, in Jeremiah's case, we don't know for sure if their rejection led to his death. It's unclear exactly how he died. But in Jesus' case, we know exactly where their rejection led him. The rejection of Jesus' people led to his execution. It led ultimately to the cross. And that's where I think we can go back and even read some of the things that are about Jeremiah first, and they take like an even deeper meaning. When it's, imagine this about Jesus, people plotting, let's cut him off from the land of the living so his name will be remembered no more. Well, those words apply to Jeremiah, but how much more to Jesus? Or, or how about this? Like a gentle lamb, he was led to the slaughter. And in his case, in Jesus' case, the lamb was slain. There was no deliverance. I think in the text in Jeremiah 11, God actually delivered Jeremiah. They were trying to lead him to the slaughter. And if you read the text, God delivered him. But in the case of his own son, God did not deliver him from death. That lamb was slain. See, Jeremiah's story sheds light on the story of God's final lamb, the lamb who would be slain, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And by the way, that wasn't the end of Jesus' story either, though, because God also raised that Lamb from the dead. But I don't think that Jeremiah's story is only meant to help us think about Jesus, though that's a big portion of what I wanted to do today. I also think his story should help us think about our own calling, too. Now, I don't think that it's likely that God's going to call you to start doing very strange things, like to go hide your clothes in some rocks somewhere and deliver a message that way, okay? But I think it is worth thinking through if we would be willing to do things that we know people would laugh at us 
for if that's actually what God wanted us to do. In other words, what if, what if God's call on us includes bearing shame, being ridiculed, being a laughingstock in your workplace or your family? What if God's call on our life is to a hard life where we are rejected? I mean, and then, and then you think about that. Isn't that basically Jesus' job description for us? Isn't that what he said or what he meant when he said things like, if anyone wants to follow me, he must deny himself and pick up a cross, which is like the emblem right, of suffering and shame, and follow me. See, the specifics of our calling are different than they were for Jeremiah. But I, I think there's more similarity than we might think. Jesus' call to us is to total life commitment regardless of the cost or the consequences. And in fact, Jesus calls us to total commitment without giving us the details of what it will mean. We commit to him before we know how it's all going to turn out. Jeremiah, I don't think he knew everything that was going to happen to him. He, he says as much that I didn't even know that they were doing this but his commitment was already made to the Lord. So I think Jesus both lays out before us the reality of our call to pick up a cross and get behind him, but we don't get all the details in advance of what God's hard call on us might be, what it might look like in our day. And, and that presses us to say, will I follow anyway? Is he worth this to me regardless of the cost or the consequences. And what I've seen in Jeremiah's The Man this week is a man who actually listened to the call. And that has got me thinking about whether I'm really willing to do the same. Are we willing to follow in the steps of shame? if that is God's call on us. God's been just challenging me through the life of Jeremiah, which is why Peter read that text about Hebrews chapter 11. Of all of these prophets, of all these people who've gone before us, who because they saw the glory of Jesus and the future city, they were willing to live here as exiles. Are we willing to do the same? Let's pray. Father, would you take these words and just stories, Lord, and, and would you move in our hearts so that we will both see Jesus more clearly, but also that we will sense the weight of Jesus' call on us. And, and I thank you for the example of Jeremiah and I pray that that will stir us to really think <clears throat> about your call on us. And I pray that as a community of believers, 
we will push each other to keep following in the steps of Jesus, regardless of cost or consequence. And I pray that as the author of Hebrews tells us, that above all, we will keep our eyes on Jesus, that we will consider him who endured such hostility from sinners so that we will not grow weary or faint-hearted. Lord, help us as your people to cling to you and to follow in the steps of Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.